Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm your host, Gazelle Amami. On this week's show, we'll be sharing some of our favorite musical compositions for television. Plus, we're joined by Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein, the composers behind Stranger Things' excellent score. That's coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Solar Seitz. Hi, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. Welcome back. Thank you. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hi, everybody. Hey, Jen. Hey, Jen. So, you know, we have been wanting to talk about music on TV for a little while now. And, you know, it's just one of the most interesting things happening on television right now. And we'll be talking about music supervisors on a different show, the people who create kind of the perfect soundtrack for for television. But this week, we're, we're going to be focused on music composition, which is music that is created specifically for a show to give it its mood and tone. There was a piece in The Guardian a couple of years ago that that talked about how sophisticated music composition has become in recent years and framed it as kind of a trend and talked about how in the past, shows had more forgettable music, except for a show like, say, The Twilight Zone which has become very memorable for its score. But that now TV is just about as good as film when it comes to how music is used to communicate the show's themes. Would you Would you guys agree with that assessment? I wouldn't agree with that at all. I mean, I think that certainly um, we've seen a resurgence of a of, of fully scored um, television show, um, whereas there was a period in the 80s and 90s where it was more heavily dependent on what they call a needle drop score where it's you know it's pop music and then there's some incidental sort of connective tissue type music and and you know a full-on score is something that i think has come back in a big way and um there was a long tradition like in the early days of television in the 50s and 60s of having um original scores like real scores that were performed in the studio with musicians like sometimes large numbers of musicians and uh they were quite beautiful and if you go back and look at particularly some of the older um adventure shows and and westerns from the 50s shows like the rifleman and the lone ranger you know we think of the william tell overture when we think of the lone ranger but there was a ton of other music like all these other themes and all this incidental music and on a show like the rifleman they would compose a new theme for whoever the guest character was that week and they really put a lot of thought into it but i do think that um a lot of the stuff that's being done now is in that vein and Mm -hmm. it's and also in the vein of like an old-fashioned scored film i also feel like people are just watching tv with a greater overall heightened sense of awareness of, of everything, what's being done visually, and maybe they're just paying more attention to the scores now than they did 10 or 15 years ago. That doesn't necessarily mean there were no sophisticated composers working in television, but I think people are just really assessing television in a more sophisticated way than maybe they used to. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And also just how the format has changed in terms of Netflix introducing the binge-watching model. I was reading in... Uh, a piece from Variety from just a few years back about how this has had an effect on TV composers just in terms of their their working life where they have to create all the original music at once instead of, you know, week to week. 
And this can also has the effect of making it feel more like a film composition because they're able to track themes throughout a season and kind of avoid being a little bit more repetitive. Mm -hmm. So I think that's possibly has to do with how, you know, TV is feeling more film-like and and just Mm -hmm. how we... We talk about it in that way in a lot of other ways, and music is just one of those ways that we are also talking about it now. I would say right. that one one way in which um, scores for television are more sophisticated now than they were in the first couple of decades of TV is there's more variety. There's more variety. It's not all done in a particular mode. I mean, the mode of 95% of original scores in the early days of television um, was a classical kind of Americana vein. You know, or occasionally kind of a show tune, big band sort of vein, like something like the Dick Van Dyke show music or, or, you know, a lot of sitcoms had that kind of music. But now you see shows that do that, like 30 Rock had that kind of a score, like it had a very old fashioned, like Hollywood movie comedy score, like almost something you'd hear from like the mid 60s. And it it was ironically used a lot of the time. But then you have a show like um, Mr. Robot, which is a very heavy kind of droney, hypnotic synthesizer sort of sound. And then you had something like uh, Battlestar Galactica, which was a very percussive, um, at times almost abstract score. And um, Lost, of course, which is a really just a great example of that kind of old-fashioned throwback score. And yeah. there's just so many different flavors. And, and uh, Stranger Things, which uh, we're going to discuss with the composers uh, later, is very much in the vein of the 80s movies that the kids in that show would probably be going to see. You know, you mentioned Lost, and that's... Um, you, you mentioned the throwbackness of it, and just in how it's created as well. Michael Giacchino, who's the composer, would write the music and then an orchestra would actually perform it as a video of the episode played. So it had this very kind of classical orchestral sound to it. Yeah, and it, and there were many moments where many of the major characters had their own themes or at least their own melodic lines. Like, you know, Jack would have his own theme and, and you know, Locke would kind of have his own theme. And sometimes if two characters were... In uh, uh, in contradiction or in conflict, they would marry the two themes, yes. which is a very old movie thing to do. You, you mentioned character themes in uh, Game of Thrones. We recently did an interview with the composer Ramin Jawadi, and he talked about how how he uses different characters' themes and combines them for different scenes. It's really fascinating, you know. In the final scene of the finale, where we have Daenerys sailing away with her armada, you have Daenerys's theme combined with five other themes, which is the most it has ever done. You also have Theon's theme, the Unsullied theme, the Dragon's theme, the main title playing. So it just creates this kind of triumphant sound. Yeah, and also in the the finale of the season, you know, a lot of people immediately were talking about just the the piano music that opened the episode, and just that was a very different kind of tone that was being set. Um, but still, like you said, a kind of an ominous, like something big is about to happen, something major is about to happen, and it really, not that you're not sitting up and taking notice when the last episode of a season of Game of Thrones is starting, but it it really kind of raised your hackles even more that something pretty epic was about to occur.
there's a tradition in television as well of this kind of music that sometimes it's classically uh, scored and other times it's done with synthesizers or, or, or some other kind of um, source music. But the intent is to suspend a moment or to suggest that a lot of action that's occurring over multiple timelines or, 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 you know, lots of plots and subplots that are kind of unfolding along parallel tracks are in fact all part of one moment. And that's something that section of the Game of Thrones set piece, which is amazing that you mentioned, does that. And Mr. Robot does that a lot. And they do it with the with original score music. And they also do it with um, needle drop, you know, pop music, like uh, the scene in the um, season two premiere of Mr. Robot where uh, the CFO of the company burns that cash, and they bring in um, Phil Collins' uh, Take Me Home, and they let it play out for its entire length. And if you took the music away from that scene, it would seem uh, kind of boring, probably. Like, at a certain point, you'd lose interest in it, because a lot of it is just close-ups of, you know, the fire, his face, the fire again, his face, the crowd, people in the crowd, and so forth. And it was just the, it was just the noise of the park. It wouldn't feel so hypnotically intense. And I think that section in Game of Thrones, it gathers a kind of power for that same reason, because you're hearing one piece of music that's threaded through the whole thing, like a, you know, so that the scenes become like clothes hanging on a clothesline. Like mm-hmm. You really feel like it's all part of one thing. And there's also a, a, a kind of a almost a meta aspect to the, to the way they use music in that scene in that every season of Game of Thrones has a symphonic structure. And they're laying out all of this um, narrative material and they're crisscrossing between different kingdoms and different people's stories and, and different warring factions, but they're threading it together. And there's always this big climax, usually in the second to last episode, sometimes the last one as well. And it builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and finally releases just like a symphony would. So it seems kind of beautiful to me that they've sort of built that little tiny miniature symphony within the larger symphony that was the season mm-hmm. by just by the way that they put that music in there. Yeah, you kind of take for granted how much work the music is actually doing. Yeah. And I think Fargo is another show that does this really well. There's a scene I, I want to play a clip of in the second season, and it's used to kind of highlight um, Jesse Plemons' character, Ed Ed Blumquist's struggle. It's very, very tense as it starts, as the camera pans over this car with a bloody broken windshield due to his wife Peggy's hit and run. And then it pans to him thinking about what to do as he looks through this dead guy's wallet. And the music suddenly becomes very light. And it's just this perfect moment of, like, encapsulates Fargo's sensibility and its constant contrast of dark and light. Yes. And it's like this this is a terrible situation, but then it's also darkly humorous, and the music is kind of guiding you and reminding you of that. I love that scene. And, and like, as you were saying, it, it's doing that. And I think it's also doing another thing, which is just marvelous, which is it's doing something that um, the Coen brothers themselves often do with uh, with Carter Burwell's music, and that is to draw a contrast between the sort of pitiful, pathetic nature of a lot of these characters, like the, how small they are, how deluded they are, and but then they're contrasted with this epic music. Yeah. And, that, and that becomes part of the joke, yeah. too. Another show that I think... I think I, I've always loved the music, but I think it's gotten better in terms of how it uses it is The Leftovers. Yeah, I was and, hoping you were going to mention that. Yeah, it, it's Max Richter's score. You know, it, 
it never fails to make me cry, but that's particularly the case in the second season because in the first one, I just felt like they were laying on the theme so excessively and it could sometimes be just too much. And then in the second season, it comes in very rarely and when it does, it's just that much more emotionally effective. Yes. Yes, and I would say that they, um, the way that they use that piece of music, it's a very minimally scored show but they're very judicious in where they place the music and the way they use the music in season one versus the way they use it in season two is very true to the experience of grief which is what the show is about and it makes sense and in the first season that music would be more uh, frequent and more oppressive mm-hmm. because that's where what the character's emotional state is and then later when they get a little a little bit of distance not a lot but a little bit more distance maybe we hear the score less often and there's also more variation in the way the score is presented like the instrumentation is different the pace is different that's just great stuff yeah yeah it's interesting because the leftovers the, the emotional response i have when i hear that leftovers music and so much of the music in lost is identical even though they're completely different, <laughs> the music themselves, because The Leftovers is, I, I think, much more understated. And when I think of Giacchino's score for Lost, I just think of it being big and swelling, like just big emotion. Um, that piano just does something to you. It just it just has a, it's like a Pavlovian response that I just start crying. Yeah. <laughs> for, for Lost, for me, it's more the fear response. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The fear response, but I feel like there it's keyed and this is true of a lot of scores. A lot of that I think it m- might be keyed to instrumentation. Drums are scary. Drums yes. are scary or they're exciting or they're both. Whereas I think um a lot of a lot of the lost score and a lot of the leftover scores dependent on strings and piano and for me, I mean, I don't know about everybody else, but for me strings is guaranteed you will cry now. If, if it's properly done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's very like, it's almost like they're squirting an onion into your eye. <laughs> but the piano is much more delicate. It's much more delicate and more fragile. So it's yes. kind of like, it's almost like it's cutting, it's cutting through the, um, the sentimentality a little bit mm-hmm. with that piano. It's mm-hmm. very gentle. Like it's almost hard to play a solo piano and have it be oppressive. Shows like, um, like Lost and Hannibal and the X-Files, the, the way the music is used, I, I, it's often the case that it's, scarier than what you're even seeing on the screen oh my god the hannibal score the hannibal score oh my god apparently with that that's brian reitzel who also did who does a lot of sophia coppola movies he also did lost in translation apparently that show oftentimes there will be more music than there are visuals Apparently, some episodes are 43 minutes of music in a 40-minute long episode because the music will play before the image even fades into yes. the screen. They do that. They do that. And and um, and also the score itself, I, I, I'm so fascinated about that score that I've actually gone to the trouble of reading about it. They're not just using instruments. They're using things that are not musical instruments like they're you know they're using Mm -hmm. the innards of musical instruments like they're scraping the strings inside of a piano they're like rubbing like the inside of a of a viola with some kind of object and in some cases they're you know they're putting like pipe cleaners inside of pipes and they're like dragging a shoe across a shag rug and like all (laughs) of this and we're not because we're not used to hearing that like we may not know what we're hearing but we know that it's not natural well speaking of creepy uh the music for Twin Peaks, um, Angelo Badalamente's music. 
like I can't even think about Twin Peaks without hearing it in my head. And I feel like that is the measure of what a really great and effective score does where it's so intertwined with the show that even even just your memories of the show automatically conjure it up in your head. Um, I mean, that that whole score just creates so much atmosphere. And I feel like that was a turning point in scores, too, where people really wanted the music from Twin Peaks um, when that show was popular because... Um, for what I, for the reason I just said, I think they wanted to just hear it and remind themselves of, of the show. And, and I don't, um, I think that was a surprise to, to maybe Badalamente and to David Lynch that people were that <laughs> interested in the music. I had the score for that and the movie uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me on cassette. And I used to, <laughs> and I used to listen to them as I drove around town. Just Is to that, freak yourself does, out. Does that, yeah, just, well, it was just so great. And that opening music, it's kind of amazing when you go back and watch that, um, that is one of the longest opening credit sequences, I think, in the history of network television, and there's no actors in it. It's just shots of the town of Twin Peaks, and you see the forest, you see the roads, you see the waterfall, and you hear that bo bo <laughs> It's very uh, kind of trance-like. It induces a trance-like state, and I wonder... You know, David Lynch has been very active in promoting transcendentalism and meditation mm-hmm. as a solution to a lot of life's problems. And I wonder if maybe that wasn't his way of uh, trying to get us into into an actual meditative state by opening it that way. Because it always opens the same way, every single week, the same images, and it's it takes a long time. And it's like you're leaving the you're leaving your world behind and entering the world of Twin Peaks. What you just said is a made me think of a good question, which is. Um, so many people watch TV now by either binging it, streaming it, uh, DVRing it, and it's so easy to fast forward through the opening titles just to get right into the show. But I wonder how many people actually sit through them. Like I, there are certain shows I I want to watch the opening titles. Yeah, no, there are shows where I look forward to it where. It's. I look forward to it just so I can sing along in some cases. <laughs> yeah. Like with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and with Outlander, I have to sing along every time. <laughs> yeah, I used to. Uh, when ER was on the air, I, I was so into the opening music to ER that I would actually go, ER, ER, as it was playing, like, which makes me the biggest geek who ever lived. But, you know, it was a great opening piece of music. But it does. It does. It puts you in a, a, the mindset like, okay, I'm ready to go into this world now. And I feel like if you fast forward past it, at least with certain shows, you miss something. We tend to talk about great scores in terms of dramas, um, but there are certainly a lot of shows that, that are more comedically driven that have great scores. And one of my favorites is um, Pushing Daisies, Jim Dooley's score for that show, just the, the sense of whimsy that it evokes. Uh, I miss that show so much. Um, but just that, you know, I, I think that maybe we overlook it more in comedy for whatever reason, but it's just as important there as it is, you know, in a drama like Game of Thrones or, or Lost. Yeah. Um, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is another one where yeah. similar to has, yeah. similar to 30 Rock, it provides the mood. It, it, it kind of adds an element of perversity to have a score like that <laughs> yeah. attached to that sort of comedy. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I, I like that. And uh, I also, I, I'm sort of a, a little cautious about those kinds of comedic scores because sometimes sometimes it works really, really well, as in the case of these sitcoms that Tina Fey is associated with. But other times, I feel like it's a result of network notes, like particularly when characters are kind of sick and twisted or the show has sort of a dark edge. You'll often hear this plucked, this kind of plucked strings music mm-hmm. playing when, mm-hmm. when things are happening. There's like, bloom, 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 bloom. Bloom, 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 bloom. And like right, people right. are people are plotting to do some horrendous, heinous, yeah. completely disgusting thing to somebody else, but they're bloom, 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 bloom. you're supposed to go, ah, oh, it's all harmless. Yeah. Ah, uh, look, it's harmless. It's just harmless shenanigans. And I always wondered, do people who make the show want that music there, or was right. it foisted upon them? And you know, the biggest offender in the history of TV in that respect was Desperate Housewives. Mm. Desperate Housewives, like I felt like there was a much darker, sicker show inside of that, like screaming to get out. And they never quite thought there because they had a case of the cutes. And I felt like the music sort of certified that for me. Mm-hmm. Like it was just, it was sort of deep. Every time the show would grow fangs, the music would pull them out, you know? Yeah, music working against the show is is interesting. Yeah, and yeah. I see that happening a lot. Yeah. I see that happening a lot, and and uh, and that's but that's been true throughout television. Right. I mean, sometimes I go back and watch older shows from the '60s or the '70s, and um, sometimes you have a kind of in, uh, a sort of incredible excessiveness, like uh, on the the Six Million Dollar Man. The Six Million Dollar Man sounded like they had taken, you know, George Clinton and Weather Report and and like, you know, the complete works of Nelson Riddle and like put them in the teleporter from the fly. It was like completely deranged music. And there'd be Steve Austin would be fighting Bionic Bigfoot and they would in slow motion and it would go on for like six minutes as they're fighting in the woods. And this music would be going and going and going and like this frenzy, this kind of like nutty, you know, kind of rock jazz improv thing that they were doing that's that's kind of great and that's really one of the only reasons to ever watch that show again but there were also a lot of times where you just looking at it with modern eyes you wish that they had a little more faith in the story and the characters and they didn't feel the need to come in with the music Mm -hmm. you know especially during sentimental moments where it's like i already like uh, the beaver he seems like a good kid (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and I like his parents, and we don't need the music telling yeah. you, look at how sweet the beaver is, look at how nice his parents are. You I know? Mean, yeah, I mean, that's where the worst offenses always happen, right? When it's a sentimental moment and they just hit it really too hard. For some reason, when you were talking, I just re- uh, started thinking about how at the end of Doogie Hauser, whenever he was writing in his journal, they would always play that like, doo-doo-doo-doo, like it's like... <laughs> There's like the sentimental computer music. And uh, listen, I was a sucker for it. I was like, oh, Doogie learned a lesson. The worst is probably reality television in terms of how manipulative it can be. Oh, and, God, but, yes. Um, Vulture contributor Catherine Van Arndonk has written about it for for us. And, you know, there she kind of categorized the different types of music they use for different edits. Like the villain edit gets a certain ominous yeah. score. It's really, it's really interesting when you start listening to that stuff and noticing kind of how it is informing your view of what is happening even though maybe that's not at all it's just someone walking but right, the villain exactly. music is playing so. right so you know they're bad <laughs> yeah what's up dude you are you are jordan you're acting weird bro you're all in right now i don't know you're like just what's up I'm nothing that weird about right 
Do I? I, I always love it when um, you get to know the character of a show. I mean, the artistic character of a show, like we were talking about the leftovers and the way they use that particular theme, kind of the key theme of the leftovers. Once you know what the leftovers is and what it's about, it's there's a points where you know, like, and now the music's going to come in, and then it does. Mm-hmm. And Deadwood right. was a show that did that too. There was a particular piece of music that they used on Deadwood, where um, something horrible was going to happen in public, like you know, a kid's going to get run over by a horse, or somebody, you know, there's gonna, somebody's going to beat somebody else to death in the main thoroughfare or something. And they would start in with this music, and on the uh, television without penny message boards, they actually referred to it as the Deadwood music of doom, like every every word capitalized. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that um, the score has become important. Like, it's an important part of the creative process for the entire show, and it's something that's thought of from the very beginning, because there have been many, many instances, and I'm sure there are many more even now, where the score is an afterthought, mm-hmm. where the main, the main order of business is putting the show together, and it's like, and at the end, we'll score it. And here, you see more and more instances of the composer being brought in long before they've shot a single frame of the show, Coming up next, we'll be talking to the composers behind Stranger Things. We are very excited to have Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein here with us today, members of the Austin, Texas-based instrumental electronic group Survive, and the people behind Stranger Things' musical score. Kyle and Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So can you just start by... This is the first time you've composed film or TV music. Is that correct? That is correct. And... So can you just talk to us a little bit about how you just initially got involved with this project? The Duffers reached out to us um, after using one of our songs in a little mock trailer that they did to pitch the show concept to Netflix and asked if we were available and if we could send them some more music to you know pitch to their producers to get sign-off on us doing composition for the show. Um, we worked on that for a little over a month, kind of after work, after our day jobs, like pretty steadily, and we ended up getting the job. Do you know how they discovered your music? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nope. We have some ideas, but either the, the guest soundtrack, we had a couple songs, a lot of people heard that, and um, they also think maybe Spotify or something like that, or maybe someone showed them. Yeah, I'm not sure. They don't know. They don't remember. They don't remember. <laughs> so the the opening credits music for Stranger Things is what really kind of made me feel like, oh, okay, I'm going to like this show. Just it immediately grabbed me. Um, and I'm just curious how, you know, is that something you conceptualize first and just how you conceptualize that song specifically? Well, we didn't do that first. We weren't even sure if we were going to be doing the main title when we started working, we weren't sure, but we knew we yeah, wanted it was, to. It was kind of secondary that we would maybe get to. Oh, um, okay. And there was some stuff in our early pitch to to see uh, if we had some stuff that was good for the show. And there was an old demo that was very similar uh, writing-wise, 
had a similar sound to that and they liked it so they wanted us to expand on it it's essentially the same melody and general it's like the same progression but uh, we've obviously fleshed it out quite a bit from that original demo it didn't it didn't before sound like a like a bumper or a title sequence it's very much in in an 80s vein obviously because of the uh the setting but it it just it just sounds like the essence of like i grew up that was my coming of age as a moviegoer was the 80s and like the second i heard that it just it just reminded me of like tangerine dream and john carpenter's scores and things like that and i was wondering what how do you those are things we like well there you go how do you actually compose the music i mean like i i imagine you guys with these gigantic you know analog synthesizers that have fans in mm-hmm. them to keep them from overheating but maybe you yep. just use plugins or are you do you going no. back to the roots there, or? the the from the former is correct it's, really that score is like maybe n- maybe not fans five percent hardware there's like some modern kind of vocal style uh engine vocal synths that are plugins I and mean, then stuff's mixed on the computer but yeah i mean a lot of the reason that it sounds like the 80s is because we're using a lot of the same equipment that those musicians would be using. Very much. I mean, almost probably. I could guarantee that. What? Similar there's production techniques. There's too. probably a one to one on a lot of the instrumentation that John Carpenter or Tangerine Dream or whoever would, Definitely. would have been using Vangelis. Are you synthesizer connoisseurs? Is this something, or is this equipment <laughs> that you already had, or did you have to go out and buy it or borrow it? No. Uh, we. I've been collecting it for. The last, I would say, t- in short, yes, we are synthesizer yeah. <laughs> connoisseurs. <laughs> would you say that the quality is is better? Like, what makes you, what made you want to use kind of go old school? The sound and the experience of using it. Wouldn't say that it's necessarily better, but it's, it's more a little fun. more inspiring, and it definitely has a different texture. When you guys started working on this, as I understand it, like it was, as you were saying, it was really early in the process. It's not like you had even. Uh, any any footage to look at. So when you were talking with the Duffers and trying to establish the right tone for what they were going for and what you were going for, what kind of things did you talk about? Did you talk about John Carpenter or what, what were the things that helped you figure out where you wanted to go with this? Yeah, we did talk about some other composers. We also re- referred to uh, the library that we sent over in initially um, and kind of used that as, as a guiding force for what we would do. They'd a couple things and say maybe something like this but if it could do something more like this we definitely weren't trying to watch like a lot of 80s films because the objective was almost to not do strictly like 80s vibe or 80s like go over the top with it so i would i would really enjoy like if i saw like the original like i watched solaris or something and that was probably more inspiring like yeah. hearing a score like that and that would give me more yeah, like, cr- ins- inspiration because the the synth thing if they're like oh later on in the show it's going to get aggressive we might have some brooding carpenter i'm like i'm not going to worry about that right now that we kind of can do that like that. that's easy let's do all the other stuff first not saying that's easy but <laughs> if you listen to survive or something like we just tend to make synth um, sequence and type darker stuff easy like easier and we obviously talked about the characters and the way that they kind of exist within the world and how they react to certain things and we had some some visual cues to look at but nothing 
obviously no footage. Did you make any particular decisions uh, with regard to the sound of certain characters or certain moments? Well, for instance, when we were pitched to do like a theme for Eleven or something like that, um, they had mentioned they wanted it to be like wondrous, childlike, and maybe resemble a music box hmm. in some way. So we kind of picked a synth sound and tried to write something that we thought sounded, you know, playful, kind of like a like a music box. Yeah, I mean, we we did we did some themes. I'm I'm not sure how strong the themes stand out to just the average listener. We know what the Eleven theme is, and, yeah, and it does play when she's on camera, but it's in the we credits of one. We don't really like. I don't yeah. beat it into the ground where like every time you see Eleven, you hear the theme. So I'm not sure how obvious those themes will be to the average watcher, which I don't think is a problem. I think it's kind of good actually. At what point did you guys actually see the music married with the imagery from the show? We started seeing picture in November, early, mid-November. And so that's when we began to start seeing where some of the library had been placed and actually starting to write to picture. But, I mean, we didn't see a final cut until, I don't want to, I want to say maybe February. We were getting these things called dailies for a while where we were even seeing like casting and then we started seeing um where they were starting to create the monster and then we started seeing like just like all the outtakes of shooting the scenes and we would try to score that but it didn't really really come together and get the full experience until we got locked kind of edits and we could actually score a scene where they'd stop editing and us having to redo stuff and kind of read about that just like not to do too much off the picture because it's all going to change before it's locked that was one of the new things was just working with how like raw the early uh, cuts are. It's just like the sound effects are insane. The like mics are loud. The the video looks uh, not the same way they're going to like treat it or colorize it or do everything. Right. So aesthetically, I guess it looked different while we were working on it than when it finally came out. When synthesizer music started to become more prevalent in the 70s and 80s, there was a pushback among more classical composers of film soundtracks and I think there was a perception that was spread among people who followed this stuff that uh, synthesizers were um, inhuman you know yeah. like like that they were that they weren't and that they weren't expressive in the way that you're describing but it sounds like the process is no different than if you were leading a 40-piece orchestra except it's you guys and a bunch of keyboards yeah yeah I guess that's just kind of how you uh, your perspective how you view the instrument Sure. People want to say it's cold or unexpressive. You definitely have to. I mean, not that you don't have to put in work to get an orchestra to emote some kind of feeling and do, you know, a little, a subtle, you know, trill or or whatever at a particular moment. You still have to take those consider those things into consideration when using synthesizers, and it just happened. Like in our case, we have four hands versus you know forty pairs of hands to do all that so you have to do a little more planning about what percentage of each episode would you say has music i'd say it's about 25 minutes out of yeah like 25 40, to, 40 to 50 minute episode that's a lot yeah. there's a lot of music in a show in that show yeah there is <laughs> <laughs> there really is a lot of music in there i mean and that's why people have been responding so much to the music i think because it's just such a big part of the show 
when they first approached they were like we want the music to be bold we want it to be a part of the show yeah a heavy part of the show are you guys surprised by what a just it's been such a talking point on social media and people really seem to be embracing the show like yeah a bit surprised <laughs> I mean, it was had an idea not that it expected would be... at all the response that's happened. I, I mean we knew it was gonna be good we knew it was good but... yeah <laughs> But I didn't know that it was going to be like this. Is it making you consider doing more composing for television or film? Oh, we we yeah. wanted to do more We've even before it was successful. Yeah. We wanted to do mu- music for TV and We film were just like, when are we going to do film scores? Like, when are we going to get to do this? Yeah, we'd go to movies and walk out and be like, why didn't we do that one? What would you say <laughs> the opportunities are like there for, I mean, I know like Mogwai mm. did the soundtrack for The Returned, you know, for instrumental bands to get a chance to do a full TV season or multiple seasons. Is that be- would you say that's becoming more of a lucrative career opportunity? Yeah, I think so. There's a trend of artists being brought in to do more more kind of film TV work the last few years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as, as opposed to like someone the, who went to music school to be a composer. Right. I think people are, are definitely looking to recording artists who have a specific sound or just maybe not a specific sound but that are doing music as a creative endeavor versus as a job and kind of looking for their vision rather than someone that can just be molded into doing whatever type of music you need for your your show you know mm-hmm. there's a lot of composers who are you know versatile can write like a salsa <laughs> show and also classical orchestral score and then maybe they have a couple synths and they can do some sampling but I think there's there's definitely a trend to go to someone who has a particular sound. Thank you so much. Thank yeah, thanks a lot, guys. Us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. This Thank is you. great. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is our director of production and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Thanks also to David Alvarez, who engineered the recording from Austin with Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mami, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Matt Saller Sites, and you can reach me on Twitter at Matt Saller Sites. And I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. Thanks for listening. Sorry, guys. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh! <laughs>